This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Fuss, an investor at Irenic Capital, and today we're breaking down Vanguard. Vanguard and its founder, Jack Bogle, have ushered in an era of low-cost investment, which has left its mark on the entire industry. Today, the business commands $7.5 trillion of assets under management and owns approximately 8.5% of any given public company in the U.S. To break down Vanguard, I'm joined by Eric Balchunas, a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg and author of The Bogle Effect. We explore the firm's unique ownership structure, which in a large part enabled its success, look at the potential for regulation to slow Vanguard down, and assess the unique figure that founded the business, Jack Bogle. Please enjoy this breakdown of Vanguard. Eric, thank you for joining us to break down Vanguard, a business that's immense in its scale and reach, but I'm not sure one that the general investment population truly understands. So it makes sense to just start with the size and scale of the business to make us better appreciate truly how big it is today. The size and scale of Vanguard is one of the reasons I wrote the book. The numbers are absurd. Vanguard is about, say, $7.6 trillion. It's going to go up or down based on the market, but they're basically the second biggest company overall by total assets. BlackRock has more at about $9 trillion, I guess. We'll say $8.5 and $7.5 probably for BlackRock Vanguard. But Vanguard gains on BlackRock a little bit each year. And so we think by 2028, 2029, Vanguard will be bigger in overall assets. BlackRock has some assets from institutions and overseas that Vanguard isn't as pronounced in. But when it comes to the US fund market, just that, Vanguard blows BlackRock away and everybody away. They have a 27, 28% market share of all US fund assets. That's double the old high watermark set in the 90s by Fidelity. So they're double as big as anybody's ever been relative to that market. And what makes them so unique is they only account for 5 6% of the revenue share of that market. So that gap, to me, is one of the scariest gaps for Wall Street because it shows some pain coming down the line. If everybody made what Vanguard made, which is close to happening because everybody is going towards Vanguard level fee funds, the industry would go from making $140 billion a year to $20 billion a year. So that would be like an 80% decline in assets. I don't think it'll get that bad, but I do think we're looking at maybe 50%. So this is an utter and total disruption of an industry. If you look at any different category, like if you go to equities, they've got the most market share. If you go to fixed income, they manage more bond assets by twofold over anyone else. BlackRock is number two. They have $1.5 trillion in bond fund assets. And they're also the biggest active bond fund manager more than PIMCO which is also something little known about them. They have $1.3 trillion in active assets, making them the third biggest active fund manager. And they're probably going to pass Fidelity by the next two or three years. Capital Group's got a pretty good lead, though. Then you go to Smart Beta. They're the biggest Smart Beta issuer. And the ETF side, they're second to BlackRock, but they're going to probably pass them in two years. 
the thing with Vanguard is they always take in more money than everybody else. That's why I can sort of generally predict they'll take the lead in these areas. Over the last 10 years, they've taken in $2.3 trillion in flows. That's almost a billion a day for a decade, not just like a hot month, but like a decade. That is an incredible consistency. And nobody's ever come close to that level of dominance. And in these rougher markets like this year, they take in the majority of the flows. Their absolute flows might come down a little bit. I think now they're taking about half a billion a day this year. But relative to the rest of the world who's losing money at a higher clip, they're above water and leading. And that is when they really start to eat up market share quickly because flows are all you can have to gain market share. And so it's these bear markets where Vanguard's going to emerge as even a bigger leader. Personally, I think the only thing that can stop their growth at this point is regulation. I don't think any market forces are going to do it. So that's Vanguard in a nutshell today and flows and assets. I can't overstate really how dominant they are today. Maybe it makes sense then to zoom out and talk a bit about some of the secular forces that have allowed them to gain such immense share and the flows towards the types of funds that they manage. So our audience can better appreciate why this is happening. Jack Bogle, who started Vanguard in 74, by the way, so we're talking about almost 50 years old, right? They didn't really do much for the first 25 years. In fact, 97% of Vanguard's assets came after Bogle stepped down as CEO. So you're right. There are several catalysts. Because Vanguard also, they don't do distribution fees or loads. So they were sort of operating outside of the system that they forced you to come to them. It just took a long time. But over the 45 years that they've been around, the first index fund they launched was at like 46 basis points. But it's come down slowly over the years as they got more assets and they pass on those economies of scale. So when the fund expense ratio for their index funds got below like 20 basis points, they started to see a good surge of assets. Then when it got below 10, it started to sweep the country, right? Anything under 10 basis points is so revolutionary for this business. So that's a big catalyst is it took a little while for the funds to get dirt cheap. The second thing is there's been a huge movement in the intermediary world from brokers to advisors. So brokers get paid by the mutual fund company to put the client in the fund. In a way, it is kind of like a kickback. We call those loads, distribution fees. And a lot of those brokers, I think over the years, maybe felt bad about putting clients in a fund they knew wasn't great just because they got paid off. And so many of them left that world and they became RIAs or independent advisors where they get paid as a percentage of the assets. Once you get paid as a percentage of your client's fees, now your money is their money and you are going to probably go for the cheaper products. So the move from the broker suitability world to the advisor fiduciary model was huge. And advisors have 26 trillion in assets. So that intermediary shift was major. And that really also helped. And I think probably the third thing was just the experience people had over decades of buying a fund that was like on top of its game one year, and then realizing that it actually underperformed the year after. That experience of maybe seeing for yourself that it's just very difficult to stay on top and beat the market for over a year or two, let alone 10 or 20, that helped a lot, as did the internet. The internet really started to grow in like the 2000s. If you graph the growth of internet household usage and passive assets, they're like 98% correlated. That's also no accident. Probably some causation, maybe not totally, but either way, the internet allowed information to spread quickly. And I think people could then compare easier. S&P did SPIVA reports, active versus passive. That spread, made blogs, journals. Once this information got out there, it just sped up the comparison and the level of knowledge that, hey, it is just so difficult to beat the market. A low-cost index fund usually will come out on top over 20, 30 years. And a lot of people just dropped out. They stopped picking, moving, 
they just went to Vanguard. And as Christine Benz from Morningstar said, for many people, it's their last company. It's the last place they go. They don't go anywhere else after that. I think all those forces got us to this place where Vanguard is just so on top of their game. And so I think it'd be helpful if you could explain the true revenue model and ownership model that Vanguard has. You've alluded to the fee structure, which is broadly recognized to be the lowest cost out there. How does Vanguard then generate revenue and how do you think about the ownership structure? So this is obviously where it's unique. They have what's called a mutual ownership structure. Now, there are some technical details, but the main idea here is it's almost structured like an insurance company. It's mutually owned. So the funds own the company and the investors own the funds. They're represented on the board. And so what happens, what the effect of that is that when the fund gets big and the company gets big and they've got extra profits, the people who are voting on what to do with those are the investors, essentially. And so they just vote to lower the fees in their own funds, right? Because that's their interest. That having sort of one master, if you will, gave them such an advantage. And it's yet to be copied today, which again, attracted me to the project because here's this company that has this special structure that clearly kicks butt, works for them, but nobody's copied it. And I found that really interesting question. But that's sort of how it works. That's why when I go back and I try to stress to people that when Vanguard started out, their funds were 40, 50 basis points. They were not 10 or five. It took them a long time to get there because they had to get the assets first and then get the extra profits and then use those profits to lower the fees. Now, of course, they still have to have office space and hire people and pay their executives well. I try to say that Vanguard's largely a normal company. People get paid well. The CEO's handsomely paid. There's just no one getting Jeff Bezos rich because the owners got the money. The owners are the investors. So there's no owner that's getting filthy rich. Like in the Fidelity case, last I looked, I might be way off here, but I think the Johnson family might have like 20 billion in net worth. So there is no 20 billion. That money went to the investors, but essentially that's the structure. When you rinse, wash, and repeat that for 45 years, you go from 40, 50 basis points, slowly, slowly down to 10. Now most of their funds are five and four basis points. So essentially they're able to offer that for free. And this structure, in my opinion, is the number one catalyst of this whole change we've seen towards passive and indexing. I make the case in the book that indexing got way too much credit for the index fund revolution, ironically. Indexing would not be a big deal if the index funds were 70, 80 basis points, or even 50 or 40. It's only a big deal because they're under 10 basis points. That's when the assets really started to come in. And I just don't think any other company would have the motivation or incentive to go and offer low-cost index funds. And if they did, they probably would charge you somewhere else. But with Vanguard, there is no somewhere else. Then you got a CEO, Bogle, his unique structure, I think, is really part of the story too, in that a guy would purposely do this. It just so goes against all of Wall Street physics that you'd come into the scene. I won't go over the details of how the company was formed as unique, but generally, I think he deserves credit for championing this. He could have easily gone to a company and made more money. I think he ended up with $80 million net worth. But for what he created, that's a low amount in Wall Street terms. And he spent 45 years championing low cost. He wanted you in low fee funds. Most other companies that have low fee funds, they accept that you want to go there, but then they figure out other ways to charge you because it's a business. I'm not blaming them or demonizing them, but that structure of the company and his structure, I think, are the catalysts that have created this ripple effect. Indexing was the perfect fit, but it actually got lucky that Vanguard existed. Just to contextualize it, if I were to go and buy... SPYs, the ETF, what would the fee structure look like to me as the investor relative to going through Vanguard and buying their S&P index? 
this is why I call the book The Bogle Effect, because there's what Vanguard did. You can go to Vanguard and like VOO is their S&P 500 ETF. It's three basis points. BlackRock has one that's three basis points, IVV, and then SPY is nine. So as an investor, you'd probably be better off going to VU or IVV. But the choice between VU and IVV is almost indifferent. And now Fidelity has S&P 500 index fund that's even less than three basis points. I believe it's two or one. What he did was force everyone to come out with Vanguard-esque funds. That's why the effect is way bigger than Vanguard. You can now get basically beta or index exposure to almost any asset class for under five basis points, if not 10, from any provider at this point. That is a massive commandeering of the whole industry. So in the book, I sort of come to the conclusion that nobody has to copy Vanguard's mutual ownership structure because they already are. They already are offering low-cost funds as if they had that structure. They're doing it because they have to compete with Vanguard, but it's almost like there's no need to do it now because you can get those low-cost funds anywhere, which is why if Vanguard is regulated because they're becoming bigger, bigger owner of stocks, and I think ultimately the regulators will have a problem with that, you can still get this exposure elsewhere. Even on the Bogleheads forum, some of the Bogleheads complain about Vanguard's customer service, and they use Fidelity. So Vanguard and Boglehead type investors, sometimes they don't even use Vanguard. They're actually on other people's services using Bogleesque type products, though. That's why this effect is major. And so if you take all the passive assets out there, Vanguard only controls 50%. The other 50% are from a host of other issuers, BlackRock, Fidelity, even Goldman, JP Morgan, Schwab. They all have these products. And I think that 50%, it's interesting to see where that number goes forward. Bogle was so out of his mind and different that in 1991, he said, I'll know that our mission to create a better world for investors is beginning to happen when our market share begins to erode. Have you ever heard of a CEO actually rooting for their market share to erode? Like, is there a precedent? I've asked everybody this. Nobody can find an example. It's an odd thing to happen, but it speaks to the different trip he was on, that he knew that the only way the Vanguard's market share would erode is if everybody else got cheap and became good stewards and served customers at the highest level. And that's starting to happen. But it's not happening fast enough. Vanguard still grows their market share, as I said earlier. Yeah, it's funny. The only analogs that come to mind are probably Costco as a business that's perpetually reinvesting its excess profits into lower cost offerings for their loyal customers. So that's an interesting analog, but I presume that they don't want their market share to go away. So not exactly directly comparable. I guess basic education on ETFs versus mutual funds, I think, would be helpful in the context of Vanguard. If you're going to transact on Vanguard and use an ETF versus a mutual fund, what are the key differences to investors and why they would use one or the other? ETFs, as a wise man once said named Reggie Brown, are just mutual funds with benefits. You get everything you get from the mutual fund with the ETF, except you also generally will have a lower fee. What I love about ETFs and why I dedicated my life to covering them is that I felt they democratized investing in two key ways. One, they serve up everything to your fingertips, just like Amazon serves up anything you want to buy. You just click buy, you own it. Same with ETFs. The other thing is they democratized the share class system. Mutual funds have share classes, which are like a regressive tax system. The less money you have, the more the fee is. And the really big clients get the lower fee. That's called the institutional class. ETFs basically give the institutional class for everybody. And in many cases, they're even cheaper than that. So whether you're Bridgewater or my mom, you're going to pay the same fee in your, let's call it the iShares Emerging Markets Fund or whatever. There is no classes. The other difference would be an ETF is traded every day. I guess we call this a benefit where you can buy it at noon or one or two o'clock. I don't know if that's huge. I mean, if you're a long-term investor, if you buy the fund at the end of the day versus buying the ETF in the middle of the day, how much is the market going to move? It's not a huge deal. 
But I think the fact they trade all day has attracted the trading crowd. So if you're a trader, I know a lot of millennials like to trade like leverage ETFs and ARK and all this stuff. People like to speculate with them a lot. They're a really fun way to do active trading because let's say Brazil elects a new leader and you're bullish on this person. You don't need to know which stock to pick. You just buy a Brazil ETF and you now have that trade on. So I think they really make it easy to be somebody who reads the news and is thinking like an economist and is able to trade that way. And then the final thing is their tax efficiency. This was an accidental benefit, but the way ETF shares are created and destroyed, it has this nice byproduct of not producing any capital gains distributions on a regular basis. Those are usually able to be washed out through the creation redemption process. So what that means essentially is if you're in a mutual fund, you may get hit with that tax and you did nothing. That tax is just the consequence of what other people in the fund did. With an ETF, you don't really get that. You do get taxed when you sell. So I think people generally like to be taxed when they sell and on their terms, not just sitting there and getting a tax bill. Those three things are probably the most major advantages and why ETFs have begun to take market share from mutual funds. That said, I myself am in mutual funds and I'm an ETF analyst. I'll tell you why. In the 401k plan, mutual funds are fine because you generally get the institutional class because your company can afford that class. So you get a low fee. You don't need to day trade it. And the tax efficiency doesn't matter because that's already a tax deferred account. So in a way, ETFs lose all their superpowers when they go into the 401k world, but they crush outside of that world in taxable accounts. So Eric, if we were to look across the ETF market, I just want to try to get a sense of market share amongst the major players, I guess, between ETFs and mutual funds in the passive ecosystem. And some ETFs are more active than others. How do you think about the industry landscape? There's really, we call it the big two. It's Vanguard, BlackRock, and then everybody else. The image I would show is you've got King Kong and Godzilla in this epic battle, and then everybody else feeds off their crumbs. But there's big crumbs falling down, don't get me wrong. But BlackRock and Vanguard, for example, they're going to take in about two-thirds of all the new cash going into ETFs. But there's 150 or 200 issuers who are fighting over the third but that third is going to be three, $400 billion or something in the neighborhood of that. So there's a good amount of money there to fight over. But yeah, it's really becoming the big two. State Street used to be part of the big three, but they've really fallen off and they don't take in that much money in flows. They really didn't pivot properly about 15, 10 years ago to the cheap thing. They thought their liquidity would carry the day, but BlackRock pivoted to core series, which are very Vanguardian and they're low cost, and they were able to really satisfy the advisory world. So the ETF industry has a lot of business case studies in that way in terms of being adaptable and pivoting. And a lot of the firms like BlackRock lower fees before they have to. They might even have an industry leading fund, but because they smell competition from Vanguard, they'll just cut their fee by like half, which is hurts. It's a self-cannibalization move, but it really helps them. We've seen this actually really help issuers. In terms of the mutual fund world, a lot of that world's dying. This year, $800 billion have flown out of mutual funds, could reach a trillion for the first time ever. That said, for example, there are certain pockets of mutual funds that do okay, some international areas, and also index mutual funds. Fidelity's index mutual fund business is big. It's a trillion dollars. So even though we focus on the ETFs, Fidelity's carving out a nice little niche in the index mutual fund space. They have two basis point funds there. And so when you look at the overall landscape, Vanguard rules in all funds. BlackRock is number one in ETFs, but Vanguard's creeping up. And then we go to different areas. And there's some people who succeed in certain places. But overall, I think we're going to be looking at a world where you're going to have 
these four companies I think are going to matter the most. It's going to be Vanguard, obviously, in everything. BlackRock competing with them in the ETF side. On the index mutual fund side, you've got Fidelity. And on the active mutual fund side, you've got Capital Group. So if you could imagine Vanguard in the middle, BlackRock's fighting them in ETFs, Capital Group with active mutual funds, and Fidelity with index mutual funds, those three competitors, I think, are enough to sort of keep Vanguard from growing any faster. But those are the four companies I tend to focus on quite a bit. And each of them is really good in one area in fighting Vanguard. But none of them are a Vanguard in themselves, if you will. I would be remiss whilst talking about ETFs and their size and scale if we didn't touch on the world of ARC. Can you just help us to appreciate how big or small they are, really despite the outsized media attention that they do get? It's wild. The media attention per asset ratio here is off the charts. I will say the reason it's off the charts is because what ARC did is like a one in a thousand chance. It's like the Blair Witch Project. Remember that little indie movie that made a ton of money? It probably wasn't the highest grossing movie that year, but the fact that it was filmed with a little camcorder, it made it a big story because it showed like, hey, anybody can do it. This story was phenomenal. But right now, ARC has $13 billion. Vanguard and BlackRock will take that in in like a week and a half. It's not that big. And the other thing was interesting, like ARC, the other day I was tweeting out about how it had taken in, ARKK has taken in $1.5 this year. And a lot of people were like, oh, you see, retail hasn't capitulated. They're still buying this stuff. And they use that as a sign of sentiment. I just told you $800 billion has come out of mutual funds. Another $500 billion has gone into ETFs. These are big boy numbers, which I would really use more than ARK's little $1 billion. I just think Kathy Wood has symbolized something like the Robin Hood ETF purchaser or something. But what people misunderstand about Kathy Wood, or, or I guess underestimate, is that she just perfectly fits into the modern portfolio. People who have boring vanilla beta in the core, they want wild and crazy to decorate it with. And so Kathy, she lives in five years in the future. She's talking about robo-taxis and AI and stuff. And people are like, well, I don't know. She does sound a little wild, but I don't want to miss out in case she's right. So people kind of just hang there because the pressure's off her. Nobody's putting their kid's college education fund in ARC. So she doesn't have a lot of pressure, like say a fidelity fund or something. So that's why I think she can hang around for a long time. But she's very small in the scheme of things. So thinking about Vanguard in the context of Bogle as the grandfather of indexing, his passion for it, I guess, started when he was in college. Legend has it that his college thesis defended indexing. Can we talk a bit about the history of Mr. Bogle and why Jack started this company and how? I was shocked at the amount of serendipity involved, although you could tell from Bogle's thesis, as you said, that he was a, a guy who just had a lot of character, seemed to have a populist DNA in him. His great-great-grandfather was a thorn in the side of the insurance industry for firemen back in the day. And he actually wrote pamphlets saying, lower your fees. So there was some DNA involved in Bogle in that front, I believe, but I think a lot was circumstantial. So he writes this thesis about the mutual fund market, and he gets hired by an active mutual fund company because of it. That company's called Wellington. He's there for, I don't know, 10 years, and Wellington's losing assets because Wellington has this really conservative balance fund, which is like equities and bonds. It's like your grandmother's type fund. It's very safe. It works great in a sell-off, right? Because it goes down less than the market. But in the 60s, when Bogle started at Wellington, nobody wanted that. Everybody wanted the Kathy Woods of the world, the growth stocks. And so the guy who was running Wellington 
was old and wanted to step down and said to Bogle, you take over and see if you can turn this thing around. Bogle, as he said in a couple of his books, he felt like everybody was selling tasty donuts across the street and they were selling nutritious bagels. And he figured he'd have to start selling donuts to succeed. So he went out and tried to team up with a equity manager that would service equity and growth stocks and give the company some edge and hopefully offset the outflows from the more conservative Wellington fund. So he goes through a couple different people who just don't want to partner with him. And he finally settles on this company, Thorndike. They had like four names, but we'll just call it Thorndike for now. And they were a smaller boutique shop. Actually, as I read about them, it reminded me a little bit of ARC. And they were real into the whole growth thing. They were like, this is a new normal. They thought it was going to last forever. Anyway, they didn't really get along. And when the 60s ended and the early 70s bear market came, it was ugly. Bogle had given them way too much voting control. So they got into fights over how the company should go forward and they fired him. And he was kind of about to lick his wounds and go away, but he realized that he was the chairman of the funds themselves. And that's different than being chairman of the company. Of the funds, he was able to dig in and make a stand. He wouldn't go away. So the board said the two sides need to come up with a compromise or some way that you can like live together. That is where Bogle went and Jerry Maguire style did a deep dive into many different options and wrote this huge report. And they went over all these different options. And one of the options was to make Bogle in charge of the back office. So to do administration, accounting, stuff like that, the boring stuff, and let Wellington and those hotshots just run money, which is what they liked. And in order for it to look like Bogle wasn't taking off with any money and to pass it to a board who had both Wellington and Thorndike people, he said, we'll make this company mutually owned. That was a way to get it through the board. I will say Bogle had also said in his books, he thought about the idea of a company that had one master and not two, because Wellington had two. I don't know where the truth is with circumstance or Bogle's brain. It's really hard to suss that out. But suffice it to say, the board agreed that this back office company would be able to exist as a solution to this really nasty bifurcation between these two parties. And then that company he named Vanguard for about two years, they just did back office stuff for the Wellington funds. But then Bogle read something in the Journal of Index Portfolio Management. Dr. Paul Samuelson had talked about, what if somebody out there launched an actual index fund so we can compare active managers to it? And Bogle read that and said, you know, this is interesting. Maybe I could do this because part of the deal when setting up Vanguard was he could not run money. So he thought, well, I won't be running money if I launch an index fund because it doesn't have to be managed. So that's an interesting loophole. And again, how Vanguard formed and how it got the index fund were really predicated on some really lucky circumstances and really unusual situations. There really hasn't been a situation like that where the funds fought their own advisor to that level. As I wrote this book, I almost felt the universe just wanted this company to exist. There was just so many one in a long shot chances that had to happen. So that ultimately is how that played out. And then in 76, they launched the first index fund. But again, in no means did Bogle invent indexing. This had been around. Some other people tried it in the institutional world. But again, Vanguard was the real disruption here. Indexing just happened to be hand-in-glove fit for Vanguard structure. That was 76, and the rest is history. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because my understanding is most of the growth happened after Jack stepped away from the business. What was it like transitioning to new leadership, given the fanfare that Jack Bogle has in today's world? It was not pretty. This is what made Bogle so interesting to me and why I actually compared him to a punk rocker multiple times. Not only would he go to events and just sort of like crap on the audience's livelihoods, 
Like you go to ETF events and say ETFs are crap. You go to Morningstar events and say active is crap. <laughs> I mean, you guys just, you go on CNBC and say trading is a loser's game, even though the whole channel is dedicated to trading a lot. So from afar, I was like, this guy's kind of like punk. He's just not normal. But that metaphor stretches a few different ways. One of those ways is he actually got kicked out of both of the companies that he loves so much. So when he stepped out as CEO, it was more because he had a heart issue at the time. But then he got kicked off the board. Apparently, he'd been coming in ranting and raving about different things, and they were tired of him. Basically, <laughs> you got to go. And they used this age limit thing, even though I think they just wanted him to leave. So yeah, he eventually got kicked off of Vanguard's board, and he sets up this little research shop on the Vanguard campus. And then the other CEOs take over, Brennan, McNabb, Buckley, over the next, what is it, 25 years? And they do really well. The first CEO, Brennan, had a big falling out with Bogle. Brennan allowed ETFs to be launched. Bogle had had the opportunity to launch ETFs in 89, 90, and said, no way. I would never want a fund to trade because he hates trading. Then 10 years later, when Brennan is CEO, they launched ETFs. That was probably one of many crucial things that Bogle disagreed with on the current management. And so for the next 25 years, Bogle would just drop bombs on all these things that Vanguard did that they were trying to sell and make money on. He would trash ETFs. He'd write op-eds in all different journals. He had disagreements with them on whether voting rights should be made public or not. They even had a competing op-ed where Bogle wrote one in the journal, and Brennan teamed up with Fidelity CEO to write one in the New York Times with the opposite opinion. <laughs> and then Bogle trashed International. Bogle trashed Smart Beta. I used to have this chart where I showed Bogle's comments on these different areas of the market and vehicles, and then the flows that Vanguard took in in those vehicles. And I would say that Vanguard is so in the zone that they're Bogle-proof because they were still taking money into stuff he trashed. That said, I think a lot of the Vanguard investors fell in love with Bogle. And so Vanguard could never go too harshly against Bogle. It would be like going against Steve Jobs if you're Apple. Like This is so much emotional support for him from the investors. They felt that he was their champion. And so there was this interesting push-pull between the two sides for many years. And now, as we go forward, Vanguard has done some interesting things since Bogle passed away. They're allowing people to go from the index fund to the ETF share class. They're almost incentivizing them to do that. I don't think he would have liked that. They also killed the ship logo. There used to be a ship logo for Vanguard. The whole company set around this SS Vanguard or whatever. All the buildings have names of ships. Bogle would call the people, the crew, on and on. In his books, they're all metaphors for sailing. And to remove the ship logo, I think is really noteworthy and shows that they want to forge their own way. This gap separating between Vanguard and Bogle, even though most of the flows still go to Bogle-ish funds at Vanguard, there is definitely some notable gap. Vanguard is now being run by regular people. And these people have, you know, maybe general ambition, like most people who go to Wall Street or asset management, they want to grow, grow, grow. Bogle was so unusual. I sort of compare him as a combination of Steve Jobs and Martin Luther, the Protestant guy. Because on one hand, he made the practical products that revolutionized the industry. But on the other, he created what's essentially a religion. I kind of call it Bogleism. Bogleism can be practiced at these other companies. As I said, at Fidelity, at Schwab, you can be a complete Bogleish investor and not even use Vanguard. So this is all very interesting stuff, obviously. And the relationship between Bogle and Vanguard, I have to think, was just very unusual. I witnessed some of it when I interviewed him in his office a couple of times, and I felt it was somewhat of a dysfunctional family. But it only added to the intrigue of the story for me and this very unusual guy. When I consider Vanguard relative to its competition today, which namingly seems like BlackRock and Fidelity and maybe a handful of others, what is it that allows them to keep attracting funds despite the fact that there are comparable products offered now seemingly everywhere? Yeah, this is a question I get a lot. It's a matter of trust. 
Vanguard has banked so much goodwill and trust over the years. It's not just that they're known as the low-cost index provider. Is that They just got known as like being Boy Scout trustworthy. They just never did anything over the years that would make you doubt that. It's hard to capture that or measure that, but you certainly feel it. And I think the flows show that. And that's why, yes, other people's low-cost index funds take in money. But remember, most of them only did this within 10 to 15 years ago. So Vanguard had a 30-year head start as being branded as the low-cost champion of the small guy index fund company. And that takes a while to catch up to. I mean, that's how far ahead of the curve they were. So I do think trust, goodwill, and branding is why the others can't really stop their market share growth. But as I said earlier, half of the passive assets are other companies. So they've done, I would say, at least a decent job of getting started. I was just looking at Fidelity's flows this year, in fact, and was remarking that Fidelity's S&P 500 index fund is now their biggest fund three times over. The next biggest one is the famous Contra fund at 90 billion. The index fund I just mentioned is like 320 billion. It's amazing. Fidelity swallowed their pride, went to low cost indexing and has had a lot of success. So if you look at Fidelity's flows of the last couple of years, all the money goes to the index funds. Their active funds are bleeding out cash. I think also for these companies, it was smart of them to come out with low cost products because now if you're a Fidelity advisor and your client really just wants passive and they were thinking of going to Vanguard, you can say, well, actually we have the same thing. So we'll put you in our fund. I do think even though Vanguard still goes market share, it could have been way worse if they waited longer or didn't do it. And Larry Fink buying iShares in 2008 and like really embracing the low cost thing was also smart. But this is all hard to do. It's hard for a company, especially if you have shareholders who want to get rich and make money. It's hard to say, yes, let's actually cut fees. But the ones that do it are rewarded in at least assets. So this is where I try to look forward of what's going to happen to this industry. Because if everybody wants everything basically for free, how does this play out? It's going to get ugly. I think there'll be a lot of consolidation. I think you'll see some really big asset managers join forces, get scale, and that way they can hang with really low-cost funds because they have so much assets in them that they make at least some money. So I think what we're going to see over the next 20 to 30 years is like the banking industry, there's going to be this NC March Madness bracket look where it's going to go from like 64 to like 5. And there'll be like maybe three or four asset managers controlling 70% of the assets, like the airline industry. Then there'll be like a bunch of niche players And those niche players will probably service a smaller part of the portfolio. And this is only reflecting what a portfolio looks like today. Most portfolios today, and we know this based on the flows, are 60 to 80% cheap beta, maybe equity, bonds, maybe a little international, all probably under 10 basis points. But then they have this 15% bucket for alts, shiny objects, this where ARC lives, crypto, things that are completely different than the index. That portfolio is exactly going to dictate what the industry looks like in 10 or 20 years. So I think a lot of the innovation, fun, excitement will happen in the 15% hot sauce lane. But the core is where you're going to find the consolidation of these big firms as they all compete to sell the 60-40 part of the portfolio to people. Again, I could be wrong. I'll eat crow if I am. But it just feels like the flows and the anecdotal data seems to be pushing it in that direction. It seems like a classic example of Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma. Seemingly, the competition wisened up and started to offer low-cost products as well. Presumably, they make a lot of their money on some of the services and adjacent business lines that may complement the low-cost index funds. I guess when you kind of think about that more broadly, generally, at this point in the conversation, we start to ask about capital allocation and what companies can do with excess profits. 
In the case of Vanguard, they're just lowering fees and essentially reinvesting in the cost that their customers pay them or don't. You presume there'll be some consolidation. We've already seen some of the discount brokerages get together. What other types of interesting adjacencies are some of their competitors starting to go into? And is Vanguard considering any of those as well, whether it be retirement advising, taxes, accounting? What are the complementary services that they could provide to try to capture more share? This is why the Bogle effect isn't just about the index fund. It's about how passives rise is making active get more active. That's an effect. Another effect, and I think the biggest one that you're speaking of, is the advisory world. So it's bigger than most people think. As I said earlier, $26 trillion is managed by intermediaries. I believe that the amount that is now fee-based where it gets a percentage is like 75% versus people who get paid from the mutual fund. So I think that's a big effect. Now, the question about the 75% that gets a percentage of the assets is, what's the right fee to charge? A lot of them charge 1%. It's interesting to me, I feel as though the advisory world is where the mutual fund world was in the 90s, where they control the narrative, their clients seem to love them because they save money on getting lower fee funds. So overall, the client is doing better. They're now doubling, tripling their assets over the past 10, 20 years, but they haven't lowered their fees. So their dollar fees have skyrocketed. Now, I try to say in the book, I hope this book is a great lesson on just hooking your customers up from time to time sharing some of the spoils, trying to limit your greed. If advisors have that 1%, maybe they share a little bit of it. Maybe they just add a ton of value, a ton of handholding. Because here's the thing, Vanguard and other companies, asset managers are launching their own advisory business. And most of them are doing it for about a third of the cost. So Vanguard has an advisory business that charges between five basis points and 30, depending on how much money you have. Schwab has one that literally has like a Netflix type subscription service that's very cheap. If you're like a really, really ultra high net worth person, you're not going to get the type of service you probably need. So I think I would take ultra high net worth. But then again, Vanguard has the institutional wing of their company and they might be able to service those people too. But I think a good chunk of that market is the next big area. And what's going to happen is advisors are actually going to like team up with asset managers because all the money is already there. So like Goldman bought a big advisory service. And now that advisory service, all those clients can now just go right into Goldman's funds. So by going into the advisory world, the asset managers can A, try to get some competition because they're generally cheaper than advisors, and B, they can have a stream of money that goes into their funds so they're not bleeding. We may even see the advisor-asset combo, and that will lower the advisory fees and put pressure on the independent advisors that were so key in the rise of passive to begin with. So is Vanguard going to have effect on the brokerage industry? I don't know. I mean, they went first to commission-free ETFs about a year or two before Schwab did. In a way, I think they actually sparked the whole commission-free trading thing. So they even had an effect there to a degree. And then on behavior, Vanguard and Bogle have an underrated impact as well. You know, we look at flows into index funds and ETFs that are like more vanilla, not the crazy stuff. And they're very steady in bear markets. Like this year, they continue taking money. Like no one cares. It's like they're immune to the sell-off. And so I think over the next decade or two, I think the behavior of index fund investors is going to do a couple things. One, I think it's good for them. There's going to be a more immunity to like crazy news flow. People just aren't moved anymore to do much with that. And I also think that as passive gets bigger and bigger, it's probably going to create a little more volatility in the stocks because there's going to be less people actually trading them. We're going to have this bifurcation in a way of like more blob, slow, unmoved, passive money. Yet at the same time, it could result in more volatile, which should be good for active. I think active should have a field day with the increased volatility with the stocks. And I think some active managers will emerge out of that. I think, again, we'll probably end up with active having a smaller slice of the whole pie, but existing completely. Those are a couple of the ways I see this changing. 
as you said earlier, they don't have a lot of money to play with. So their customer service has been one of their Achilles heels in a way. If I was Vanguard, I would say stop lowering fees. They're low enough. Put all the extra money in customer service. I bet all their clients would vote on that. I don't know if they'll do it, but that is something else we could see. Vanguard's probably weakest spot is customer service. So you may find companies like Fidelity, BlackRock, who have a little more money to play with saying, hey, we pick up the phone when you call. We're going to get the job done quicker. So you may have some people competing on service as well. Those are some of the things I would say to look for going forward. Yeah, it's funny. Let my bias show a bit as both an active manager and a Vanguard customer. I hope that it's a great decade for active managers and that Vanguard reinvests some of that revenue into customer service and the user experience, which are two of their notorious shortcomings. I forgot to bring this up and I'd love to get your take on it because I know you have more knowledge in this area than I do, which is private equity. Basically, private equity, the more stocks don't go public, the number of stocks has shrunk over the past 15 years. So there's 4,000 stocks in the US. A lot of more people interested in private equity. Vanguard, as an advisor, now has to have private equity solutions. They teamed up with this private equity manager. And it's possible private equity is also another place that gets a little disruption. Although the private equity analyst in Bloomberg Intelligence says that, no, they're way less fee sensitive. It's not going to be Vanguarded. But that's an area where if you're a Vanguard investor, I could see wanting access to it because if you're trying to invest in America's capitalism, you kind of need that given less companies go public. And so seeing Vanguard maybe dip their toe in there, they now have a private equity division and stuff and the private equity department head. will be interesting to see if they have any impact in there. So far, they just partnered with one firm, but curious if you have an opinion on that. I think what we've seen is the likes of Blackstone and alternative asset managers trying to increase distribution and access for retail into alts. Blackstone REIT is a fantastic example of that. And so it would not surprise me to see increasing flows towards getting retail distribution to private equity. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I think what everyone likes about these asset classes is the smoothing of returns, whether mark-to-market or mark-to-make-believe, I'll let you decide. I guess the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But the reality being, that's part of the reason why I think passive indexing has also seen flows, right? Because the underlying volatility and the performance has really stood out relative to the high fee loads of some of the active managers. To take that to an additional extreme, flows into private equity seem to make sense to me as well. Before we begin to wind up the conversation, you made a number of references to the potential regulatory risk in the industry. I guess my curiosity is just how that would potentially play out and impede the growth of the likes of Vanguard. The rule on the books is that a fund cannot own more than 10% of a stock. They don't want any fund to be that big of a deal in terms of ownership. But this rule was made, I don't know, nearly 80 years ago when fund companies were really one or two funds. They weren't complexes. So a complex can own a lot more than 10%. And right now, Vanguard owns pretty much about 8.5% of any given stock. BlackRock owns another like 7%. So between them, they own 15. They could conceivably go to like 15 or 20% for Vanguard and another 10 to 12% for BlackRock before they get to some really market limits. But that's a lot of ownership. And I think because that rule was made before fund complexes became such a big deal, they might look to rewrite that. I asked Hester Pierce about this, who's an SEC commissioner on our podcast, and she did acknowledge that, yeah, they were getting pretty big, but even if Vanguard owned 15% of a stock, its different funds own way less than that. 
And so she didn't seem to have that big of a problem. But you can see more and more, this is becoming a political football. There's been pretty high profile people coming out and worrying about it. Bernie Sanders tweeted about this. How can these two companies have so much power, yada, yada. So it's an issue that sort of gets the left and the right going at the same time because they can fit this to their narrative. And so it's going to become more high profile and a bigger news story. And I think they risk having a situation where they just can't grow anymore. They just get capped. The thing about that though is, you know, I called the book The Bogle Effect because it doesn't really matter. Like if you want cheap beta, you can get it 12 different places now. So Fidelity, Schwab, there's many companies where you can get a Vanguard or BlackRock-like fund. So it's not a huge deal for the investor. I think it's more just a interesting phenomenon based on the rise of passive. And I even asked Warren Buffett, who I interviewed for the book, he actually got back to my email, which was which was shocking, but I was like, yes. And I can say I interviewed Warren Buffett. But anyway, he answered like four questions. One of them was, how big can passive get before it's a problem? And he said it would probably be a public policy issue down the road, but that's an issue for another day. So I'm thinking he's on the same page as me, where if Vanguard doubles and they become 14, 15% owner of all the stocks, the government was going to respond. That's my view. I don't know if any of this will exactly play out like I said, but I'm a big sniff test guy. I think most people... This just smells a little wrong that one company should own that much of a company, asset managers should own that much of a stock. So I think this is an issue that most people can understand easily. It's not like passive hurting fundamentals where it takes like some nerds to really dissect pricing and whatnot. This is a very sniff test passing issue of like, wait, wait, this company shouldn't own 15, 20% of most stocks. That just seems a little wrong. So essentially just look out for potential headlines nothing actionable just yet, but your intuition suggests that at some point they'll reach natural limits? Yes. I think that's probably going to happen. That said, there was some bit of news recently about Vanguard piloting a program where they're going to allow their 30 million retail investors to have an option on how their shares are voted. They can turn them over to Vanguard and say, just vote them your way. I'm fine. I don't care. They could opt out and not vote at all, or they could turn over to a third party. Schwab also introduced something would poll their investors to get where their head's at and then they vote their shares based on the polling data. I think this could stave off regulation a bit because if your worry is that one company has that much voting power, if you do democratize that power a bit, you could make the case of, well, yeah, we own 15%, but this is 30 million people. They have been given the choice on how to vote their shares. Thus, it looks worse than it is in terms of centralized power. I will caveat it with that. I'm not sure how far that will go, but this is a step that's really breaking as we speak. And I think we're going to see BlackRock, Vanguard, and all the big issuers start to roll out these options for investors in terms of how they want to vote their shares. The natural extension of that question is, as I look across shareholder rosters, you see the likes of Vanguard, BlackRock, Fidelity. Typically, the headlines are focused on BlackRock influencing policy. Why is it that Vanguard has avoided the headlines? Larry Fink is just a very public guy. And he went around saying he was going to use this power that he had as being a big owner of stocks to sort of push for climate change issues. And he was very vocal about it. He wrote letters about it, went on TV. And this really annoyed the right at first. But then he took a step back because some pensions in the South were like, hey, we don't want you messing with oil companies. We actually like them the way they are. So then he actually backpedaled a little bit. And then he pissed off the left because he didn't go far enough. And they ended up just becoming like the focal point of everybody who is like 
wants to protest something. <laughs> and so Vanguard, meanwhile, if you know that company, they're very quiet. They're out in Malvern, Pennsylvania. BlackRock's in New York City and San Francisco. They don't talk much. They'd rather be out of the news. And so they're rarely seen or heard when it comes to this stuff. BlackRock, they're 52nd Street in Manhattan. So when somebody wants to protest, they just go to New York City. I don't think people are going to go out to Malvern, PA to protest. Like I don't think they care that much. That's probably why. But ironically, Vanguard is a bigger owner of most stocks than BlackRock. But BlackRock has become the focal point for many of these groups. Generally, the way that we round out these conversations is taking the lessons that you've learned from studying this business and from an investor perspective, what you can learn and trying to identify potential opportunity with the lessons learned. And then from an operator's perspective, I think you've provided some fantastic examples of lessons that other competitors have taken from Vanguard. But to finish it up in a summary, what it is that you think you can take away from this story? If you're in the business world, I think the moral of the story here, you don't need to go full Vanguard. This guy was really on a whole nother level, but maybe just apply a little bit of it. Like I said about the advisors, throw your clients a bone now and then. If active mutual funds had just lowered fees by a couple basis points here and there, they still would have made a ton of money and they would have been less disruptable. So I think that's good. More value for less money over and over. I think it's a good business study. In the book, we have an example called the Steve Jobs rule, which is if you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will. And we look at how the iPod came out, I think it held 1,000 songs or something, and it was 400 bucks, and it was huge. Next one comes out, holds you know 5,000 songs, cards is $300, and it's smaller. He did this over and over, and Apple just destroyed everybody and was so innovative. I would look for companies that are willing to self-cannibalize a little bit and hurt themselves for the sake of future survival. It seems to work in tech, clearly worked in Vanguard's case. And so I think it's a good business school study. I also think for crypto, crypto is a world that sells itself as populist, but there's so many people in crypto who are becoming billionaires, hiring movie stars for commercials, something non-populist about that. I have a guy who wrote the intro to the book who is from the crypto world, although he used to work in ETFs. He fills the gap between crypto and ETFs. And I think crypto could get some stuff out of this as well. Bogle was a true populist. Live life is a populist. His business was populist. A little bit of that will go a long way if you're trying to sell yourself as a revolutionary populist. I think got to be careful not to become filthy rich and lose your way a little. That hypocrisy will be very apparent to people. Bogle, I think, was just a good study in walking the walk. The choices he made early on to defer assets, those hard decisions paid off such big dividends later. And so again, I find this to be a good book about taking the longer, harder road that usually pays off way bigger in the end and the ability to self-cannibalize. I think those are some of the lessons I would take away if I was somebody studying companies. Well, Eric, this has been a fantastic story about a business that despite its size and scale, the general population is very little about, but the influence it has on the way that we invest and the way that indices work is not comparable to anything we've seen. So I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. It was my pleasure. It was great to join you. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 